Welcome to Fundamental Fairness, a podcast about bridging the gap between fintech and financial inclusion. Brought to you by Camino Financial with your host, Sean Salas. Welcome to another episode of Fundamental Fairness. This is a live podcast recording about financial inclusion from the lens of investors, entrepreneurs, and policymakers. And today we have an amazing topic to discuss. It's about the impact of COVID on black and brown communities. And well, as you know, COVID-19 is presenting us with two crises, a health crisis and an economic crisis, especially with the public health crisis dramatically reducing economic activity and overall spending. Due to communities of color being hit the hardest, this pandemic has highlighted the U.S.'s face of inequality and racism even more. Today, I sit down with Claire Kramer and Mark Madrid to discuss this and further impacts of COVID-19 on Black and Brown communities. Claire is the Assistant Vice President and Director of Community Development Analysis at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Claire leads a team that promotes economic opportunity by equipping community stakeholders with rigorous data analysis and tools to make impactful investments. And I can truly tell you that Camino Financial has been influenced by your research, Claire. So you truly are making a difference. I quote the Fed all the time in my pitch deck. So I just want that quick validation point, not that you need it, but I'm telling you, it does make a difference. And one such example of this is the small business credit survey that was launched by the New York Fed and has been widely covered by the likes of the Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, CNN, and more. We also have Mark Madrid, who's the CEO of the Latino Business Action Network. As a nonprofit organization, LBAN for short, focuses on strengthening the U.S. by improving the lives of Latinos, empowering Latino entrepreneurs to grow their businesses through research, education, and ecosystem development. After a successful career in banking, the 2008 Great Recession led Mark to chart a purposeful course circulating back to his Latino roots and harnessing the economic value of Latinos. This led him to launch the next era of his career, now as the CEO of Alban. And I can tell you, I probably cite your research just as much as I cite Claire. So I'm literally in the presence of two people that I admire, not just for their research, but also just for being great human beings. So welcome, Claire and Mark, to this discussion. So good to be here. Honored and energized to be here. Thank you very much. And Claire, always great to be in your presence. Sean. Excited about this dialogue, yeah. (laughs) Many conversations with the two of you, besides the hours that we were talking about something, we always took an extra time to talk about these communities. So it's it's a pleasure to be with you both. Well, thank you. Thank you for everything that you do for the community. So let's get into it. The first theme of of the discussion is how have black and brown businesses been impacted? So I'm going to start with you, Mark, okay? Talk about Elban's Stanford Latino Entrepreneurship Research Initiative. They're in your goal on analyzing data to understand the state of Latino entrepreneurship. And primarily, I want to hone in a little bit on one of the latest surveys you released titled The Ongoing COVID-19 Impact on Latino Businesses, right? And just give me some quick headlines on what the research um, tells you we're going to dive a little bit more into it, but any headlines that you'd want to talk about that research and what it entails? Absolutely. Well, thanks for the opportunity. And thank you all for taking precious time 
and resources to be with us. LBAN is a national 501c3 nonprofit that collaborates with Stanford University. And together, think of us as collaborators, we champion and advance an initiative called the Stanford Latino Entrepreneurship Initiative. And that's where this research comes from. And LBAN's role is funding that research. So you're absolutely right. The most comprehensive research out there in the country right now, as it will be in, in the months remaining here at the end of 2020 and into 2021, the most extensive research is this report that you mentioned, named the ongoing impact of COVID-19 on Latino-owned businesses, fully downloadable, fully shareable. We'd love to include the research link here. It's being drowned in the headlines, quite matter-of-factly. And why does that matter? Well, let's put it in all in perspective. Let's come up to the U.S. Latino cohort, first and foremost. 2020 Latino GDP report. Between 2017 and 2018, U.S. Latinos, fastest growing GDP in the world. If we were our own country, eighth largest GDP. That is fresh. That's a 2020 Latino GDP report. And prior reports coming from the Stanford Latino Entrepreneurship Initiative. In the past 10 years, in terms of new business owners, in terms of percentage of growth over the last 10 years, Latinx, 34% positive growth in business owners. Everybody else, 1%. So that's why this matters. This critical segment is not only powering the U.S. economy, but we're job creators. And that's why COVID presents a unique challenge and a unique opportunity, frankly. We all know that COVID has disproportionately affected our community. I should know, I lost my dad to COVID-19. It's been about, about nine weeks, almost lost my mom and my sister was positive. They were in Texas, I'm in Northern California. It was a nightmare, it still is, but thank God my mom is still alive. But the same goes with disproportionately affecting our Latino businesses. If you pull this research, you'll see that in terms of the, the disaster recovery resource, what has become an acronym in our daily lives, the PPP program, the Paycheck Protection Program. That's the first round of resources that helps somebody cover their payroll. So you have to have more than one employee, meaning more than yourself. So think about all those businesses that don't have employees. So let's put them on the radar as well. But those that were eligible, Latinos got approved at half the rate as whites. And when it came to requesting and securing, no, no, securing the full amount requested, all right, whites received the full funding 7% of the time, while Latinx, and these are all employer firms, of course, because they're accessing PPP programs, got approved 3% for that full funding. Yeah. So uh, there is that funnel, that opportunity gap that means something to us. Now, what I will say is that this comparison group of white business owners, employer firms, and Latinx business owners, and this was a robust 7,000 sample size split between 3,500 white-owned businesses yeah. and 3,500 Latinx. Shout out to Marlene and Anara out there for the research. So another thing that came up is the barriers of accessing this PPP financing. Mm. And all of it was based on navigation and confusion. They didn't have the guidance. And so that hit me in the heart, thinking back to March and April. Remember all those guidelines coming from whoever they were coming from, some of them from the Treasury and the SBA that said, you know what, we've had an update in this document and this link since four hours ago. Then you open the link and it's about a 36 page document. 
that was just not enough information and guidance to our small business owners, especially when they're trying to establish a remote workforce, when they are the remote work workforce, when they have their kids going through virtual school, when they're dealing with COVID themselves. Yeah. So that's what led to this opportunity. And going forward, we have this congressional gridlock and we have TikTok till the election cycle. Who's looking out for our Latino and Latina business owners? as they go into another period of ambiguity, when they can't figure out if they should, if those who access the funding, whether they should go into forgiveness because people are saying, hold on, because it's going to get a lot easier for you. So hold on to do that while they're thinking, well, I have a time expiration on this paperwork and I don't want to be out of compliance. And let's keep in mind, Sean and Claire, this is not a loss of revenue loan. This is not a loss of revenue loan. And we have bulk businesses closing every single day that don't have direction and don't have this resourcing available. Yeah. So we see a big problem, but I'll end with this. Our Latino and Latina entrepreneurs in this research report as, are just as optimistic as the, as the white business owners. There is no gap there. They said, we are gonna get through this. And I'll really close with this. Recall during the great recession, but for Latino owned businesses, between 2007 and 2012, without them, there would have been less small businesses in 2012 than in 2007. So that's why it's important. That is absolutely important. We need to see Latino businesses as part of the solution versus the problem. They don't need a hand down. They need a hand up. They're going to hand us up. They're going to bring our economy up. We just need to enable them. And we need to enable them with capital. And it's baffling to hear how while they've been disproportionately impacted by COVID, right? Um, and I think your uh, report cites that um, something in the range of 83% of Latino businesses in the month of June were adversely impacted by COVID. And of course, many other markets are, but we're, we're you know, especially impacted as a result of not just, you know, the exposure of the business itself, but our families that are more likely to be employed and taking essential jobs and the spread of the virus. And I'm incredibly sorry to hear about your father and the infection of your other family. I hope they're all doing well. And it's clear that you are just as passionate as ever to make a difference and help our Latino community. So for that, I applaud you and I thank you for that. And so Claire, now we, you know, we already cited some numbers around the impact, you know, 83% of Latinos uh, Latino-owned businesses have, you know, realized some negative impact from COVID. And yet, you know, when it comes to access to relief, the numbers are disproportionately lower in terms of them getting that funding relative to, I think, the white cohort is what you were comparing it with, right, Mark? And so, Claire, any parallels in terms of what we're seeing in the Latino community with the Black community? But based on your latest research, and it's worth noting, the research is, I believe it's titled, COVID-19's effects on Black-owned businesses, right, for those that want to search and find that research. Thanks, Shauna, and thanks, everyone, for being here today. It's so good to see you, Mark Madrid, and I echo Sean's, I wish I could hug you. Uh, we don't hug anymore right now, but, um, but I'm looking forward to the day when that can happen again. Yeah, I'm obliged in my capacity as an employee of the New York Fed to give a disclaimer um, in any public setting. So the views I express are my own and do not necessarily reflect those of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York or the Federal Reserve System. With that said, Sean, our most recent research is called Double Jeopardy. And really, is it titled, uh, you know, to, I think, echo 
your remarks at the top of this podcast. You know, we're facing a health crisis, which is born in, you know, out of, out of it, an economic crisis, acute economic crisis. And, you know, in New York, where I live, you know, as we saw the COVID pandemic unfold in, in the spring, you know, we were in our outreach to the business community and, and you know, business owners that we, we know and we engage with regularly. You know, it was really clear that Black and brown owned businesses were hit hardest. And, you know, what we were really interested in doing with this research was really, I think, building off of broader research that we've done over a series of years, including collaboration with the great folks at Stanford. You know, we've looked at previous disasters, commonly natural disasters. We've done a lot of work on that. We were very much aware of, you know, the typical cash reserve situation of a small business, the thin margins that many have under best circumstances. And this report was really born out of earlier research that we had done from surveys that we collected in late 2019. And what we found was, you know, surveying small businesses, you know, think about it, that was the end of a 10-year expansion. So if small businesses were going to have reserves, they were going to have reserves at that time. And we asked a hypothetical question in that data that we collected in late 2019. And it was, you know, if you were to to experience a two-month shock, revenue shock, Mm -hmm. how would you deal with it? First of all, would you have to make some significant changes in your business? Would you have to change your operating model? Would you have to radically cut costs, you know, lay off employees, dip into your own pockets? And what we found was the overwhelming majority of small businesses indeed answered that they that they would have to, to take a pretty dramatic step. Now, that takes to the CARES Act and it takes us to PPP. I think research like ours, like Mark's, I would add JPMorgan Chase Institute has done really great research using very large data sets and frankly, probably, you know, account holders that in many ways are are more flush than maybe the, the typical small business. And what they've shown is that the cash reserves are, are quite fragile. So coming out of that, you know, and seeing what we were seeing in our communities, we really did focus with a laser sharp focus on businesses owned and operated by African-Americans. And what we found was we started pulling data on just simply where these businesses were, uh, were located, you know, which counties had higher concentrations. And we found, and Mark, you know, this is very similar to what we found with Latinx community. You know, if you map America, you know, there are places that have sizable population. They've got a sizable Black population, a sizable Latinx population, but don't actually have as many businesses as you would think would be born out of that population density. So you've kind of got overperformers and underperformers in terms of business starts. But beyond that, if you look at the businesses that exist in the black and brown community, what you find is that the business receipts are really concentrated in a limited set of counties. And what was notable for us when we started looking at that, we said, oh my goodness, 30 counties in America account for 40% of the receipts that are earned by African-American businesses. That's pretty concentrated. And then we took a further look at those places and we said those places, two-thirds of them were in the early days of COVID 
extra hard hit by the pandemic. They had among the highest caseloads as designated by Johns Hopkins University. So our thinking was, you know, there's we've got to start really interrogating this. We've got to try to understand what's going on and how well served because these are effectively the COVID hotspots from a business perspective. They are going to be affected. They are going to have family members who are affected. They're going to have personnel, people you know, who are working part-time, full-time contractors who are affected. They themselves may be at higher risk from the illness. And so we really focused in the report that you referenced, uh, Double Jeopardy, on those 30 counties. And we've got tables in the report that really you know, delve specifically uh, in detail on, on 10 counties that have the highest concentrations of, of Black-owned businesses, small businesses. And what we really were trying to do, and I will just say, the PPP data are not perfect in a variety of ways, one of which is reporting on racial or ethnic status was optional. You don't have great granular data about the applicant in many cases. And so to really understand, we're we're doing the best that we can, which is to understand what's happening, how many we were sizing, essentially, how many businesses are in a county, right? So taking the the number as a a benchmark of those who would potentially be eligible for PPP, and then understanding what the, the PPP loan flows in those counties were. And what I can say is that, you know, essentially the, the counties that had higher concentrations of Black-owned businesses were not well served by PPP uh, yes. in comparison to other counties, yeah. uh, particularly places that were COVID hotspots. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. In the context of Mark's research, I think it was a funding rate of 50% less than that of the white cohort. Do you have a sense of magnitude of what the difference was? Were you able to benchmark against another cohort or another county that has less concentration with... Yes. So we've got national averages. And and then, you know, so if you take like seven, it's essentially for the national average coverage rate within the period that we looked at, which was to late summer, was 17.7%. And you see in places like, for example, I'm just looking at, you know, parts of our district, uh, the Bronx, New York, for instance, they were at 11%. Queens was, sorry, the Bronx was 7% really, really glaring. Queens was 11%. And, you know, if you've been early days of COVID, you know, looking at Elmhurst Hospital, looking at, you know, Corona, a hotspot in Queens, New York, you know, these were places that were particularly hard hit. And again, because PPP did not require, you know, there there were certainly documentation that was required, but there weren't performance characteristics that were required. You know, there wasn't a revenue qualification. There wasn't a profitability qualification. It was, you know, theoretically, many of these businesses would have been eligible. And yet you see the disparities. Okay. So so using that one case study, I mean, it still seems that it's a more than half of a cut in the coverage with Black-owned businesses relative to at least national benchmarks. So of course, that's one county. There's many counties, but it's scathing to hear that, right? And then here, Mark's remarks. And then by the way, just to note, how bad are Black-owned businesses hurting right now? You know, you talked a little bit about how many months, weeks do they have in cash on hand? I think I read some research that said that, you know, if things don't get any better, there's, you know, 50% of Black and brown businesses are at risk of closing. So as you think about the outlook, right? One, actually, before we get into outlook, where are they today, snapshot, maybe in the context of the cash on hand that they have? And then to Outlook, I'd be, be curious to get your thoughts there. Yeah, so a couple of things, just quick remarks, uh, reactions to that. I would say it, it's really rough. 
for a variety of factors. One, 95% of, of African-American businesses are solo entrepreneurs. So they're sole proprietors. They may have contract workers. They may engage 1099s. But in terms of, of their own pay, their payroll, they're solo. So it's, they tend to be small. Not all, but many. The other element that is really important is to look at industry concentration. And if you look at kind of disproportionate concentration in sectors that have been hit particularly hard during this this pandemic. So if you think about, you know, nail salons, services, if you think about restaurants and hospitality, you think about retail, all higher concentrations than the U.S. average. And so those are particularly acute because recall like when PPP was, was passed and acted and put into play, the timeline was, you know, slated to be end of summer. Yeah. And we're sitting here in October and the, the headlines today from the New York Times show graphs of, uh, and maps of spikes, real grave concerns. 41 states are, are experiencing increases in cases. And so as the timeline elongates, that is particularly grave, particularly for you know, businesses that do depend on consumer traffic. Now, I think are important distinctions, and we may get into this, you know, for businesses that have been able to pivot. Right. Uh, so if you're a restaurant and you've been able to engage in takeout business and you could could reposition, there have been innovations in terms of ghost kitchens and other pivot points. So I don't want to minimize that. I think there's been a lot of creativity and moxie. And I would go back to the point raised earlier that small business owners are inherently optimistic, yeah. beautifully optimistic um, and beautifully adaptive. But there are some fundamentals and, and some of the concerns really right now really Relate to the fixed costs that they are dealing with, including, you know, legacy, you know, rentals for space if they happen to be in a commercial lease situation mm-hmm. uh, that they're locked into, and and that you know is, is something we, we're talking, uh, you know, about renters, you know, and, and and tenants both on you know the residential side and how you know we've had some moratoria in effect, but on the commercial side, that's also a really big issue. And I would say, answering your, your question, I've heard estimates, you know, ranging from a third to, to half, that that's anyone's guess, because we don't know when we'll have a vaccine, and we don't know what the, the remainder of the fall and the winter look like. Okay, so we have a lot of knowledge, everybody. So I want to paraphrase some of that knowledge as best as I can, because we're talking to two incredibly smart people that have access to a lot of data. And so I'm going to do my best to paraphrase it. So Mark has done his research on the ongoing impact of COVID-19 on Latino-owned businesses. And in this research, he does some benchmark analysis, um, Latino versus a white cohort. And effectively, Latinos were, their coverage rate on PPP funding in particular was half of that of the white cohort. Despite that, right now, as of June, right, 83% of Latinos have feel the, the negative impact, presumably on the revenue of COVID. Despite that, they're optimistic. Now let's go back to our Black-owned business cohort. So the coverage rate is actually pretty much the same, right? As it relates to national averages, they're probably about 50% that of the national cohort in this case, versus just the white cohort. Um, using one illustrative example of a county, but that doesn't surprise me. And, you know, their closure rates are two times higher than that of other demographics. That's what I read. And, you know, the guess of the closures, absolute closures, anyone's guess can be a third to a half. Let's hope it's much less than a third. And yet, 
They're optimistic. Do we see a trend here? Do we understand why we collectively refer to the black and brown communities? And we need to be together. We need to be united. We need to help each other. This episode of Fundamental Fairness about the impacts of COVID-19 on black and brown communities is brought to you by Camino Financial. And so I want to focus a little bit into some of the calls to action that both of these reports have. Once again, not a surprise, when I look at both reports and the COVID impacts on both Latino businesses and Black-owned businesses, both call attention to the topic of banking relationships and access to credit in communities of color like PPP, which we just discussed. And I know a lot of the uh, factors that go into this right, go beyond looking at one's credit history, the revenue stream to make capital accessible into these communities. So how can we work on making those banking relationships more successful? Another buzzword that I'm going to throw out is we've heard about community development financial institutions, abbreviated CDFIs. We're seeing, of course, beautiful organizations like LBAN and the Fed put research out there. So now let's hone in about on a little bit about structural solutions. So Mark, I'm going to go with you first. Once again, there was some specific calls to actions around banking or slash lending relationships. How do you see that impacting and being part of the solution? What do we need to do in that front? And of course, if you want to expand beyond that, by all means. Yes, well, I want to start that we that report, the COVID research brief from the Stanford Latino Entrepreneurship Initiative, does have a liquidity assessment. So I want to make sure that you all know about that right quickly. So again, this is a robust sample size. And the question is, how many months cash on hand do you have to survive this thing? And so when we compare scaled employer businesses between Latinx and whites, one in four white-owned businesses said that they had seven months cash on hand. When compared to the same group of scaled Latino-owned businesses, one in six have cash to persist beyond seven months. So that should tell you right now that there is a problem, there is a gap right there, and it will be intensified over time in this environment. And think about the 97% of unskilled firms and further what Claire was referring to in terms of those solo entrepreneurs. In terms of what you mentioned, yes, I did want to put a highlight in a bold, underlined, white italic font on the CDFI, the Community Development Financial Institutions, and the MDIs, the Minority Depository Institutions, that right now uh, led to uh, some churn in terms of access to this disaster recovery resources. So uh, they need to be invested in and cultivated because been put in a position at times to bank the underbanked, meaning while somebody is waiting on an opportunity on a traditional debt instrument, which all that means is a bank loan, a line of credit, some access to uh, national banks, regional or community banks, and even credit unions, some of our entrepreneurs have had had have not had that access, and frankly, some of them have not applied because they were relying on internal sources of capitals. And what we mean by that is friend, family, and checking accounts. So now they're thinking we do need help, but it's what type of help do you qualify for? So it's as much as a, of an education uh, project as possible. We did a snapshot poll just the other day. And these are scaled firms. So uh, the ones that achieved that 3% magic land in terms of over a million dollars of annual gross revenues. And I was stunned 
that there was such a super high majority of those firms that they would uh, be interested in angel and VC funding. Now, when you take a look deeper into the composition of those firms, they're not what VC and angel firms are looking for in terms of early stage tech startups. The mismatch there. That's right. What that tells me is there's a big appetite for capital, like there never has been before because survival is at stake. Scaled firms. I just want to yes for that. These are the businesses that have made it. They're making over a million dollars. I know there's, I mean, I'm familiar now only have we referred to people. I've become friends with graduates of the Stanford Latino Entrepreneurship Initiative, Slate for short. And these are great companies that anyone would want to invest in. And yet there's this disconnect. But I just want to clarify that point because there's also the other 97%. You know, we do a lot of that type of work here at Camino when we try to graduate them to be in Slay. But you're talking about this is the creme of the creme and there's still a mismatch. That's right. So there's a disconnection. So uh, I like to look at things objectively and definitely our banking system. We are trying to work with our banking system with the research that says, you know, we have pretty much an apples to apples comparison in terms of a credit profile. And yet one group is getting so much more funding than the other. And so th- we are exploring that and having conversation both ways. But in terms of being architects of our own solutions, we need to realize what we qualify for and what we don't so that we can put our energies in the right places. I think that's very, very important. And we need to have options because I get really concerned with the type of options that are out there now. All of a sudden, there's a burgeoning amount where you could go on a wild goose search on at 2 a.m. or 5 a.m. and all these options come up. Think about the context that you're in. Some of you that I'm talking to, you're just wanting to survive another day. So yes. some of those options that may seem enticing when you read, read the fine print might not be as much. So it's our job to educate as much as possible, to equip and to build confidence in our Latino and Latina entrepreneurs. And we're not a monolithic group like you described. We have these top three percenters, we have tech firms, but we have that solo entrepreneur that is Spanish speaking only. So we're not a monolith. So we need to be segmented and we need to act like we're segmented so that we can access these resources. So that's gonna become ever so more important as we have this congressional gridlock that ain't going anywhere. Uh, possibility before the election if it does, it's going to be very, very chaotic to navigate through all the steps of getting the funds actually in the bank. Got it. Great. great. You, you threw a lot of knowledge. At. You missed one thing that I think I need to give you credit for, which is the report had something that really, I mean, you talked about education, so that's clear, but I want to talk about LBEN in the context of education and scaling businesses. So can you share the stat that just popped out of the page around you then? Okay, you have your Latino cohort, you have your white cohort, but then you had your Slay graduate cohort. And from what I remember, the coverage rate on PPP funding was, was it 10 times higher? I'm ballparking here, but it was a much higher coverage rate with those that received that education. Inherently, they're better networked. You know, you're going through this, you know, kind of, process where they're more aware, more likely to match make, be more efficient and match making with the appropriate source of capital, because that's also half of the battle. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Oh, yes, I can. We're going to talk about solutions. I knew that was probably going to be in the next phase of this conversation, but I'm happy to talk about it right now because it is so important. And I promise I, I'll take about two or three minutes here. So from the very beginning, Elban took a position back in March and April is that we saw this confusion. 
massive confusion all over the place because we fight what we call a ground war, not an air war, meaning we're in touch with the Latino and Latina business owner, constantly surveying them. How are you feeling? Having elephant ears, not hippo ears, meaning we hear them, we understand them. So we're like, we're going to take this position. We have the relationships like with the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, Treasury, SBA, National Bank, everything. So we have a mobilized platform for our graduates of the Latino Scaling Program. So we were sending breaking news at 5 a.m. at midnight, and there was an appetite for it. And we became the go-to resource. In some instances, we were breaking the news before the national news in terms of the Bank of America portal is open for PPP Finance. Oh, hold on. Chase is not yet. But Wells Fargo, they just came open. And guess what? If you're having issues, we have a CDFI that graduated from the Latino Scaling Program. So there's all this real-time chatter, a peer-to-peer leadership group. That's what I'm talking about, being architects of our own solutions. And LBAN became the trusted advisor. So what that means in terms of this report, when it comes to scaled companies that receive PPP funding, scaled white firms, 28% receive PPP funding. Latinx firms that have not graduated from our program scale, 18%. Scale Latinx firms that have graduated from the Stanford Latino Scaling Program, 82%. And that is a jaw dropper. No, no small business conglomerate of any size, of any color, of any whatever you want to call it. Thank you close to that. You were comparing with the, the scaled Latino that didn't graduate. You didn't even talk about the non-scaled Latino, right? Which is at like 2 3%, right? <laughs> so I'm just like... This is nuts. All right. So I love it. I want to get to Claire, but this is this is beautiful. It shows the value of education about information transfer. And you don't have to be the lender. You just sometimes have to be the facilitator, the trusted facilitator. And as you know, at Camino Financial, we work with um, non-skilled Latino businesses. And we were proud to see that because we were an intermediary and a trusted resource, our penetration was 6.6 times higher. Our coverage was at 16.5%, so closer to national averages, when, as you know, non-skilled Latino businesses were closer, and based on our own research, closer to 2.5%. So we still have work to do, but it just shows that the value of having a relationship with the lender, which also implies within education, there's transfer of vetted information, it's presented in a way and format that's easily digestible by the entrepreneur, right? There's a relationship. All that stuff matters. People think that's soft stuff. No, that stuff matters. Claire, let's talk about some structural solutions here. We've honed in to an extent on CDFIs, banking relationships or lack thereof, and even programs like Slay have made a great impact. So are there any parallels? are new dimensions that we should be seeing this in particular with the black business community? Yeah. I mean, I think everything that you've raised is, is really important. And just to clarify for everyone, when we talk about scale businesses, we're really, we're talking about, you know, gross receipts um, in excess of a million dollars as just, you know, that, that marker. And we know that a million dollars or over in annual revenues is, is just correlated with so many, it's associated with, Having a stable bank bank relationship, you know, having you know, being in a much more uh, you know cash reserve robust position, and a variety of other credit score, et cetera. So, I think that there are a couple of things that have really come to the fore in this 
pandemic and they're long-term and they're, they're structural. So I am not going to be uh, the Eeyore on this call, but I do want to kind of say, look, we didn't get here randomly and there's a lot of work to do and it's real work. So, you know, when we looked at banking relationships in our data set, it's the case that one in 10 non-employer Black-owned businesses had received funding for their business from a bank in the last five years. That's roughly one in four for employer firms. So all of the distinctions I think that Mark has raised, scaled, non-scaled employer businesses uh, and not, they apply to Black businesses uh, as well. I think a couple of things have happened, though, in the context of, of PPP. One, we've got some information about, and this goes to the networks and figuring out who's lending in my community, who might take my application, because it's PPP participation was completely optional for banks. They didn't have to participate. And in fact, there were large regional players that did not participate. You had business owners who had multiple accounts with multiple banks and didn't get traction. They waited in the queue for a long time. And a lot of them got so frustrated after the first round um, while they were still waiting and were not served that they ended up getting referrals to MDIs, to CDFIs, and to others who they, through their networks, had been referred to. So I think that's a really important point. I can't underscore you know, Mark's observation. I mean, he's the network. He's like the, the platinum standard of, of networks. But there were lots of kind of private phone calls and you know, IMs and, and texts that were being sent among the business community, too. I think it's important to, to say that it did matter. On the CDFI side, you know, we spoke to leaders very sizable CDFIs in in California, for instance, and and they were getting inbounds, folks who had been kind of in waiting purgatory at banks Mm. and they were inbound there. So, you know, I think what we need to sort of do is take a step back and say, all right, where are the pipes going? Which pipes are going to which communities? Um, We're doing an analysis now. It it is not complete, but but the idea is really to sort of say for our black and brown communities, for business owners, what institutions were active in this program? Who actually lent at what magnitude? And what areas were not covered? Because those are opportunities. And one thing I think that's really important to say about CDFIs is they go where others don't go, right? They are by definition authorized by the U.S. Treasury to take additional risk, right? To bring folks into the banking system, to get them on the ladder, and I think, Sean, like what, in a similar vein, what, what you, you all are doing at Camino is getting folks in and giving, equipping them to get to, to that next level, to get that line of credit, to really propel the, the growth of their business. But the truth is that there aren't enough CDFIs. The CDFIs that exist are not capitalized sufficiently, and that limits their ability to do the work that they want to do. I think similarly, you know, I don't think anyone has spoken louder or more eloquently than Robert Smith on MDIs and the variety of of challenges that they face, including capitalization. I mean, we saw a move by Netflix. Hopefully that will signal kind of to others. Netflix is not going to be sort of, you know, 50% of the, you know, the holdings uh, at a bank, right? You need volume. But in addition to that, you also need, you need to equip these institutions with technology that speaks to the SBA systems. And 
you know, Robert Smith has has made that point and uh, he can walk the walk because he's, you know, a tech titan. But I think that those are really important things that need to happen going forward and they are happening. The other point that I would just say is I think there has been actually in PPV, inadvertently maybe, there has been a really big transformation in a way. It's, it's an opportunity, right? Because we had a disruption. You had in between, in the waning days of the first round of authorization for PPP, you had fintechs. You had new providers who had never been SBA authorized lenders previously, and they were approved. And then you had another wave in round two. Now, here we are in October. There was a lot of money left over in PPP, and there were mysteries about kind of why is there money left, which is probably worth its own separate podcast. And there's a lot of concern now about kind of, well, are you going to reauthorize it? Where's it going to go? There were earmarks for MDIs and CDFIs in the second round. There is evidence to say that that was a more equitable distribution. It was at least a fair jump ball, whereas the first round had a lot of challenges. But I think bigger, we know that there are opportunities. We have an SBA infrastructure, and we've now authorized a whole whole host of institutions that were never previously SBA players. How do we take advantage of that? to yep. reach communities that have not been reached. I love it. I love that as a theme and, you know, as a parting theme of silver lining. And we're not parting. We're just going to move into the Q&A session. And I know we can spend so much more time talking about silver linings, but I think that's a great note to end on because there is a future out there, right? I bore a lot of people that may be listening right now with the three R's of a, living in a COVID-influenced lending environment, right? There's the relief phase, the recovery phase, and the reinvention phase. And I think the relief and recovery are, are fairly you know, clear, and we've been talking about it. Um, I wish we could spend another hour talking about the reinvention, but I think you've covered a few themes, right? One is... You know, we've started something that we shouldn't turn off. CDFIs have a role to play. FinTechs have a role to play. Even the business owners themselves have a role to play in terms of pivoting their businesses, being quicker to adopt technology, formalize their businesses. Because there was at least, I can tell you with that 97% Latino unskilled cohort of people that weren't operating in a formal way that position them for success in PPP. And I, and I think it's also recognizing it, take two, it takes two to tangle. There's a saying in Spanish that, that I've stolen from a friend of mine, but I use it a lot, which is te regaño porque te quiero, which means, you know, I get mad at you only because I love you. And it, it, because we also need to teach our community also how to better formalize their business, position themselves for success as well. So there's an education component too, and we need to acknowledge that. So Rodrigo Ramirez de Rio has a first question. Great. Thank you. Great talk, guys. Uh, the question I have is specifically which industries have faced the most uh, difficulties recovering during this pandemic in both black and brown businesses? Yeah, so I, I will take that one. In that research that we stated, there's a powerful slide on the uh, composition of industries and those remarking that they've been acutely affected by covid so as you might imagine, but it's great to have data to support it, our construction industry has done pretty well. So they represent a large number of the surveyed responses in this particular brief, but yet there are uh, large adverse effects 
are low relative to other sectors. And that's because the construction firms were busy during the quarantine. Some of those projects at the municipal and county and state level were prioritized so that they could take advantage of people not being on the roads. A lot of infrastructure products uh, projects were underway. But when you come to the uh, food services industry, you see a large uh, representation there in terms of industries represented relative to the others in this research study. And then you see this highest mark on the y-axis in terms of adversely affected and acutely affected by COVID. So the data supports that they're in trouble. As well, you saw some good news related to our tech firms because we do have tech firms <laughs> uh, as opposed to what people don't think about Latinx. And because of the tech enablement and, the, and their uh, nimble nature, they were less impacted uh, from COVID than, let's say, the uh, social sector. So those are a couple of examples. Great question, Rodrigo. Thank you very much for the insight, Mark. Thanks. Thank you very much, Rodrigo. I am going to have Jerry ask the next question. Absolutely love this question. Hello, how are you, Mark? Hello, Claire, this is Jerry. I want to know what do you think about this statement that I heard from Nagio, right? It says, if black and brown businesses and individuals have the same type of cushion as their white counterparts, we wouldn't be in this situation. So I just want to know if this is true and what do you think so far about this statement? Thank you. I'll start. That's a great question. I mean, I think, look, our, our good friend, Melissa Bradley, has done research that suggests that an identical business started by a person of color versus a white business owner, person of color who starts the same business has to essentially on average spend a quarter of a million dollars more starting up that business. It costs them that much more, which is just a dramatic figure. You know, you're starting in a hole, right? So, you know, I, I guess I would say, I think given the ingenuity of the entrepreneurs that I know, and this is more of an anecdotal, I mean, you're, you're asking a hypothetical I would say I think that we'd be better off, but I also question fundamentally, why are we starting with that hole, right? How many businesses are never started? How many never get off the ground? And that's an American question because when we look at the demographics of business ownership going forward in America, what's going to happen to employment in America if every business that is started by a black or brown entrepreneur is starting at such a disadvantage. That's not good for America. So I think the issues we've teed up today are ones that are, they're not nice to discuss. They're essential for the American economy. Drop the mic, Claire. That's an American question. Drop the mic. All right. I love that question. Kenny, you all know him. He has a really good question, digging slightly more into the fintech theme that we talked about in Silver Linings. All right. Hey, Mark. Hey, Claire. How are you all? My question is, as we reflect on just the shortfalls of banks in serving Black and Brown communities, what role do you think fintech challenger banks like Chime, you may have heard of, will play in serving underbanked communities? I'll start with that. And I'll just give a recent example of the possibilities. I'll frame it that way. When people like Stripe and PayPal and Intuit came into the marketplace as they should because they are serving Latino-owned businesses. So I think FinTech has a very much a role to play. I think it's up to us to be architects of our own solutions, to create scorecards and to make sure that our Latinx uh, consumers and business owners are getting the best deal possible. So I would say, let's open up the options because we need them, right? Uh, but I would say as well, 
that we as, as Latinos and Latinas and those that are honorary Latinos and Latinas like Claire, by the way, honorary Latina, that we should make sure that we are in it from the very beginning in terms of formation. Because, yes. you know, look, we all should be self-interested, but if we don't have that altruism right there and it's got to be genuine, that's really what we've got to want. So right about that, Mark. I mean, I'm in, I've been in this space for some time and you need to be very intentional about the segment you want to super serve. So if you want to service the black community, the Latino community, that's not just like an adjacent strategy that you do down the line. No, you need to be intentional about it from day one and then design your platform around that. Clearly you're preaching to the choir on that. So <laughs> last question, and why don't you start Claire, which is, how can people learn more about the research you're doing? You, if you want uh, people to learn more about you, but, but in general, what you're covering as a theme. Thank you so much. So all of the papers that I referenced today are, can be found on fedsmallbusiness.org. Fedsmallbusiness, just one long string.org. And we've got a survey in the field now. You know, Mark and I have got, I would call them complimentary. They're not dueling surveys. Uh, they're absolutely complimentary, but we're in the field now looking to close our survey at the end of this month. And you'll, you should expect, you know, early public analysis from the Fed early next year. Uh, it takes a little bit of time to process the data. But one of the things I think that's really going to be important is getting a handle on where business owners are now. Did they temporarily shut down? You know, that glaring number that um, that we mentioned earlier, Sean, about, you know, twice as many Black-owned businesses shuttering. We've seen, interestingly, and this is a glimmer of hope, we've seen new business starts. If you look at the, the recent data, they've gone up very, very startlingly almost. Uh, but but you can kind of think about, you know, that makes sense in the context of folks who are shifting from perhaps being on payroll somewhere to hanging their own shingle, seeing that the pandemic is an opportunity to start something that they had wanted to do for a while. We don't know understand the dynamics of that yet. So what I think one of the many big questions that we have, and we're going to be looking at, it's really We'll be looking twofold. One, who's lending where and understanding those pipes that I referenced earlier, because I think that is the, the foundation of the way forward. How do you build relationships kind of on what's happening and strengthen the pipes that are going to communities in need, but also figuring out the way forward. And that's going to take a lot of work. Absolutely. And Mark, what about you? How can people learn about your research and you and what you're doing to change the world? That's right. So you can go to lband.us and follow us on social media, our official pages on Facebook and Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter. And with the Stanford Latino Entrepreneurship Initiative, I have included a link here, just Stanford Latino Entrepreneurship Initiative. You can get access to all the reports, the last five state of Latino entrepreneurship reports and the research on COVID. Now mark your calendar because January 29th, what was a traditionally on-site event at Stanford Graduate School of Business now will be virtual, and we need to show the world. We need to show the world that there's thousands of eyeballs, not later that you access, which will be great too, but we need to show the world that there will be several thousand eyeballs when the unveiling of the most powerful research in U.S. history on U.S. Latino and Latina entrepreneurs across 50 states of Puerto Rico is unveiled that will include further research on COVID. So I hope that you will join us. We would be so honored so that the research team, uh, Marlene Orozco and Ara Tarek, of course, Professor Jerry Porras and Paul Oyer, and of course, our boarding team at LBAN, we want everybody there because you know by now that it is very, very important. Well, you have one person that's definitely going to sign up too, if I can speak for Claire. 
and the other 45 people that are actively listening and the thousands that will engage with this content. So I'm excited. This is a movement. I think while uh, this has been a difficult time for all of us, I am optimistic, like the entrepreneur that I am, that we're going to emerge bigger, stronger than ever before. So thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of Fundamental Fairness. Please tune in to past episodes that we've talked to so many great people, Beatriz Acevedo, Patty Arguello, and more. So please tune in, follow us, subscribe on all major podcasts. And thank you once again, Claire Kramer and Mark Madrid for all the work that you've done in joining me today. Muchas gracias. Thank you, Sean, Claire, both of you. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Please make sure to like and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. We'd like to thank Bethany Sands for sound and editing. Our creative team, Tanya Chaidez and Daniel Bustamante. Talent producer, Jerry Cervantes. And our senior producer, Elianette Romero.